The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Here's your host, Giles Palmer. Welcome to episode two of the International RVF Initiatives podcast. So we're going to start this episode by learning a little bit more about the early days of IVF. And in these podcasts, we'll learn a little bit about the legends in the art world, giving you an opportunity, I hope, to see a side of people and the backstory to many things. We'll be starting our series of the IVF greats, and I'd like to introduce in this podcast Jacques Cohen who you've heard of before in our previous podcast, in our first episode. I've known Jack Cohen for many years. What happened as a chance meeting at a conference has um, formed into a, a very good relationship where uh, I consider him a mentor. He, Anyone that knows Jack knows he's tremendously um, generous and helpful to, to embryologists all around the world. He's um, at the forefront of innovations, uh, has a great mind where he can think of new ways to help people in this market of assisted reproduction. And it's my great pleasure that we get to work together again on this platform, which was the i3 platform. Jacques has immense knowledge of the early days of IVF. Um, and there's few things in the IVF world which haven't been touched by him. He's a great innovator, an entrepreneur, a great scientist, and all these things come together to help us build a picture of the art industry today. What started out as a quick chat revealed some very interesting information that we heard from the early days of IVF and Jacques' relationship with Bob Edwards. So we have an archive of Bob Edwards, which was one of the first podcasts which Thomas Elliott was doing. And we wanted uh, Jacques to set the scene and tell us more about Bob Edwards, the man. And we'll hear from him and he'll talk to you and he'll share with you um, the journey which he took in the early days of IVF. So we joined Jack telling us about how he met Bob in the late 70s. I met Bob at a conference in Leiden University. I think it was the end of November 1977. It was a two-day conference and he gave the closing lecture. It was very elegant and different from any lecture I'd ever heard before. I was looking very much forward to it because a year previously, I'd started um, I'd started a, a master's uh, course for eighteen months on on um, reproductive science, uh, focusing on on in vitro fertilization in the mouse, and uh, and and that was done in Rotterdam. But I, so my supervisor at the time, who also became my PhD supervisor later, took me to this my first. Um, a reproductive science conference, which was very much focused on reproductive endocrinology. And Bob had the closing lecture, did a phenomenal job, was very eloquent, um, speaking about his colleague and friends, and uh, particularly Patrick Steptoe, and, and, and truly very eloquent about it. Good pictures, good content, easy to understand, in spite of his, his accent. And enjoyed it very much. And I, I walked up to him afterwards, after some other people were in front of me and he was really, it is, and he had always stayed like this. He was sort of one-on-one. -on -one. He was already famous then in 1977. This is before there was a single human IVF pregnancy, let alone birth. And uh, um, he, he, he was 
just happy with anybody who would talk to him about this subject. Um, there was some eye rolling in the audience because people don't realize nowadays that IVF in the 1960s and 70s was frowned upon as a silly experiment. I, that's the only way to describe it, was a silly experiment. And so my supervisor and I were, may have been the only people in the audience that really truly enjoyed it because this is what we wanted to do too. And my supervisor certainly did set up an IVF program. Uh, well, only a year or two later, tried and then in 1983 became successful and did the first IVF in, in, in the Netherlands. So we were very, very much interested in it. And Bob, you know, just spoke to us like uh, we were pals and we were longtime friends. He knew Zalmark and my supervisor, knew Gerard for, for quite some time. And so it was good fun to meet him. And for him, it was actually memorable. He later said he remembered the meeting very well. He had forgotten about the two of us. But he always said he remembered the meeting because when he flew home to Cambridge, he got a call from Gene Purdy um, that's, that uh, next morning when he arrived. He called a call from Gene Purdy. He was calling him from Manchester where they were doing with Patrick Stapter these experiments about one a week or so doing an IVF. Uh, and trying to make this work. And he got a call from Jeannie, and, and she's told him, I have a weird ACG result on this person, Leslie Brown. And I, of course, normally you can't mention a patient name, but we can in this case. And that was it. So he, he has very fond memories of those meetings, not of Gerard and I, he, he didn't remember this, but he has very fond memories of going to the Netherlands, giving that lecture and flying back and and hearing the amazing news. Now, he'd heard positive beta-ACGs, pregnancy hormone tests uh, before. It has happened several times before Leslie Brown, the mother of Louise, became pregnant with, with Louise. But this, this was special because the levels were so good. Those assays weren't very accurate in those days, but they could see this was more than a gray area. And the first assay, and then, of course, a week later, or a couple of days later, second assay, um, and, uh, and, and the pregnancy test was clearly turning positive. And then later was clearly uh, a clinical pregnancy. And so that happened, and uh, that, that moment was in November 1977, with her birth on the July 25th, 1978. So, so I think that was my first experience with him. My second experience was really much later, um, when I applied for a job as an embryologist in the early 1982s, um, when he advertised, uh, he had already hired Simon Fischel, who was his only embryologist, and Bob, the first five, 600 cases after they established Bornhold Clinic, which is in 1981, um, maybe the end of 1980, actually. And um, he was doing all the work by himself. Jean Purdy... Uh, people think of her as a clinical embryologist, which, yes, you could regard her a clinical embryologist, but she was really a, a technician who would do everything other than handling eggs and embryos and sperm. She wouldn't do that. She, her role was really uh, making sure that this mad scientist, Bob Edwards, uh, was was in a, in a placed in a uh, in a, in a, in, a, in an environment where it was more like an operating theater. And uh, that he didn't realize when he started, obviously, that he had to, um, you know, everything had to be sterile. He comes from a, from a, 
uh, an animal science background and from an uh, experimental embryology background is certainly his laboratories were, were never sterile and clean and organized and without paperwork. You know, it was all a mess. Um, I know, Giles, you, you often show him, uh, show people the, the picture of him and Barry Bavister and Richard Gardner. Um, and that was just, if you study that picture, you can't say that's an IVF lab. It really wasn't. It was a research lab in Cambridge. Gene Purdy was the person who put him in, I think, in that place where he became organized and understood that he was doing clinical work. Um, not that he didn't get the importance of it. Of course he did. But he was, he was you know, still technology. Um, clinical thinking was not part of it. And I think she inst- in she clearly was the person who made that change. It took probably several years. <laughs> and uh, So he started Bornhold Clinic uh, with Jeannie, was the only embryologist that meant uh, really 24 hours a day. I, I, you know, um, I don't know if you guys remember, but he, they could not time a collection as we do nowadays, where it's completely under our control. Right? We, we, can, we can time it according to a date that we want to do an egg retrieval, although some people argue that that's not optimal, but you could say, I want to do that on Friday, and then you do it on Friday. You would have to calculate back when you want to start follicular stimulation, but you can do that much better than we could in those days. And in those days, uh, you you were dependent on the spontaneous LH search. So ovulation could occur at any moment. Uh, you could kind of predict it by looking at estradiol levels, daily estradiol levels. Um, Bob and, and Jeannie and Patrick were very much in favor of actually looking at LHs, which were were not done in a, in, a, in an assay system that was very reliable. And they had to do it in a, in a urinary assay system. Um, and so I had these women collect several times a day. When the LH, LH levels were going up, in order to know whether they should... Uh, give ACG if it wasn't going up on time and they were losing the follicle, the leading follicle, or whether they should wait for the LA surge to occur. And if that occurred at a certain time where the egg collection had to be planned like at 11 o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning, so be it. That was the background. So Bob was exhausted. Um, and so he hired Simon probably way too late. Um, uh, that probably took six months after, about six months or longer after he started. And, uh, and then Simon and Bob, that still was a very small team. Uh, so that he placed an ad in Nature. Sorry for the long-winded story that comes back to me. And I was one out of 200 applicants. Um, and he selected two. Carol Fahili and I were both hired. Um, and, that, and I went there, I think, in May 1982. And, and you so, mentioned that um, um, I think uh, I know from some early experience of mine, but um, because of the LH surge, I think you had people who were on standby. Like the the actual patients were perhaps you know sleeping in the car parks or whatever, or or staying in, in nearby hotels, perhaps. Yeah, that was for for all the pioneering groups that was like that or similar to what you just described. For Bornhold Clinic, that was very different because from the early days when they started in Oldham near Manchester, so the early days, 1971, 1970 they felt that patients should be addressed. And so they became inpatient. So you have to realize till 1987, when Bornhall had to change hands because of the financial, the dire financial situation. Until 1987, all those procedures were based on inpatients. 
which is probably a reason number one that it economically became a problem to sustain the operation that was called Bornhold Clinic um, because they were inpatients. And so the costs were enormous and that probably wasn't recuperated in the fees. I know for sure it wasn't recuperated in the fees. So all these patients were inpatients. So yeah, in our case, they didn't have that issue at all of sitting in the parking lot or in the hotel room waiting for a phone call. They were inside. They were there at a bed. And the husband, if he was around, um, or the partner, I should say, um, was um, in a nearby hotel or um, on, on uh, you know, um, maybe having a room somewhere in the village. Um, but the patients, the, the, the women were all on site. They, 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 were, they were admitted to Bornhall Clinic days, days before the planned egg retrieval. So that they were, they were there at least three, four or five days before the equitable took place. And that's where they were able to do this rather inefficient assay. It was called high gonavis, to look for LH changes over time. And so the, the, this is well before ultrasound became a science. Ultrasound was around, but we were always laughing about the pictures that were being produced that were very unclear. You, Giles, may remember those days as well. The ultrasound pictures were nothing like what they are nowadays. Nowadays, that's an incredible science and very, very accurate. In those days, it was not. So you had to rely completely on estradiol and you had to uh, rely on on, uh, on LH. So those were the two parameters we went by. Yeah. And did you used to use um, um, serum from the from the from the same patients? How did you do the, the culture? Yeah, maternal serum was something that uh, Bob strongly believed in. That's not always what he used. So if you um, if you look at his work, um, certainly Louise Brown was born from a procedure that involved the use of maternal serum for protein supplementation. Um, so yeah, all the procedures that I was involved in in the years at Bornhall Clinic, I was there a little over three years. It, it felt like 30 when I was done, by the way. It felt like, felt like a very long time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he used to, he, it, was, um, it was used, the serum was used. And occasionally they used donor serum as well. Astonishing when you look back at it. But of course, this was in the days where cons the consent process was inaccurate. Um, it was mostly oral, um, a little bit of writing, little bit of things that were written on paper, but mostly oral consent. And so um, using donor serum or using maybe serum from another patient who was successful and then using it for the patient who was admitted and maybe had had a failed cycle before. Well, there were all sorts of tricks. So for people that may, may not know, so that blood was taken from the patients, okay, or from a successful patient, yeah, it was spun down, you had the serum, you then had to... Uh, inactivated did you not exactly yeah. Yeah, and then exactly. you would add that and they would add that to the medium which you would make yourself yeah so all the culture medium uh, in ivf was made until well into the 1990s it took probably about 10 years for all clinics to stop making culture medium in the beginning we were very very suspicious of culture medium that was made by third party by, by technicians who had never done embryology before and then i I may be generalizing here, maybe there were one or two who did, but most did not. And so we were very suspicious of that, as suspicious of their procedures. You know, culture medium preparation was like the holy grail that was 
intense. Um, some people didn't see it that way, and maybe maybe that was a problem. Uh, but certainly, if you look at the way Jeannie, Jean Purdy, and Bob Atwood designed the Bourne Hall Laboratories, there were four spaces that actually made up the IVF laboratory. But then separate, and that was in temporary, look, in temporary ported cabins that are still made in the UK, right? These temporary pieces that you can put together, modular pieces that can form an encampment or some kind of system. So the retrieval rooms, the, the wards, all of these were made from ported cabins. And their use was aimed at less than half a year. And of course, it took... Uh, it took more than five years before it became permanent housing. But uh, but anyhow, the culture medium was not made in the Porter Cabin area. The culture medium was made in the best location, in the best laboratory, specially made only for culture medium. And only one, two people had a key, Jean Purdy and Bob Edwards. And I probably have been, had the luxury because nobody else either dared wasn't interested in asking them, can I attend your media making session? And so I attended probably a half dozen sessions. And I can tell you it was quiet. There was no chit-chatting. There was check, 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 and recheck. Everything was documented. Um, all the checks were documented. So if you weigh out an ingredient, that was documented. Somebody else would check again. Since they always did it with two people, they never made a culture medium batch that was based on a production that was by one of them. It always had to be two. And so it was an astonishing process that later became um, uh, obviously um, um, external and people realized how this was done or had developed their own ways of doing it. But I was very impressed with the way they made medium, certainly in the Netherlands in my experimental days which was six years of IVF experimentation before I went to Bourne Hall. I can tell you, I made medium almost every day and I did it by myself in the most sloppy manner in a lab that was certainly not sterile. Um, and I had, I had about half an hour, 45 minutes for making a fresh medium lot. So that was a complete eye-opener to see them actually working in a lab that was separately ventilated. It was, it, it was overpressured. It had HEPA filtration, and later it also had some carbon filters, not centrally located, but in a in a separate box. Um, and so, yeah, quite amazing. Uh, it was done in a in a space that now doesn't exist anymore. Of course, Bourne Hall is still around. Completely looks completely different now. Uh, with a new building that was built in '87, and uh, the inpatient system, yeah, basically stopped. Yeah, can I ask you, you've, you've recently had a paper uh, all about teamwork and you mentioned a little bit about the early days at Bourne Hall. Could you say something about the actual way that Bob Edwards um, organised the groups? I think you mentioned that you know there weren't like set goals as such or there were different groups in there. Uh, how was the lab organised? Okay, so there was an endocrinology lab and that was like, a, a, it looked like a chemistry laboratory. Of course it was. You know, doing an Easter Dial assay, not a high gone of his LH assay, which was basically a, a kit uh, com comparable to assays that you can buy off the shelf nowadays. Um, but the Astadial assay was, was a chemistry lab. So there was an endocrinology laboratory with several people, at least two, sometimes three or four people. Then there was a separate andrology laboratory that was small. And, uh, and then there was a common area for, those, for the 
diagnostic laboratories, which was also the area that was used for the daily meeting. We had every day, seven days a week. We had a daily meeting discussing daily monitoring and making decisions of whether there should be a change in follicular stimulation, uh, the use of uh, gonadotrophins or clomivancitrate. Uh, a lot of these patients were natural cycle. I think the majority in my days were natural cycle patients. So you had no choice but to, to measure LH. On a on a hourly on a near hourly basis, uh, so the a daily meeting was there, and the daily meeting was not just discussing the progression of the patients through the follicular phase, which would have been straightforward. Uh, the daily meeting was often used for Bob Edwards and Patrick Stapto and Simon Fisher, who kicked in, and now and then Carol and I would kick in as well. We would ventilate things we would have read, so it was a it was a a, a journal club daily meeting. And so it would often go on for an hour, 15, an hour, one and a half hours, sometimes longer than that. And it would drive the technicians crazy uh, because it was so extensive every day, day after day, because everything was new. We had to pay attention to everything. We were very insecure about how things needed to be done and very worried about making changes. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of talk in these daily meetings. It's actually astonishing. Um, and I feel bad still thinking back back to it for endocrinology uh, technicians, for instance. Or, and there were there were quite a few. They they had to listen to, to us, <laughs> to the mad scientists uh, talking about the different papers that had been published or trying to make small changes um, into this, in the system. So that's how that was organized. And biology lab had two teams in it. There was Gene Purdy's team and there was Bob Atwood's team. And Jean Purdy's team was a group of three assistants, we called them. But they were really uh, amazing. They did everything but pipetting. They did not prepare eggs and embryos. They did not prepare sperm. So they didn't touch gametes and they didn't touch the embryos. That was all done by three embryologists, Carol Fahili, Simon Fischel, and myself. And, uh, and, and the other three technicians, assistants, did everything else, including all the witnessing. So as an embryologist, you were not allowed to take an, a petri dish out of an incubator. You had to sit down. And then the, the technician, who was also the witness, would take that dish out and put it for you. And that's because Jean Purdy was a surgery nurse. I, I hope I'm saying that right uh, for a British podcast. Uh, she believed there were assistants during surgery and that there was the surgeon. And she equated the embryologist with a surgeon. So the surgeon had, was scrubbed up, you know, uh, had a mask on, was properly washed, booties on, clothing, scrub suit. They were ready. They were asked, actually, are you ready? And then we would agree on who, who would come out of the incubator and for what reason. Uh, so you could never go in there, really never go in there, and just take a dish out by yourself. It was more complicated to take a dish out from an incubator or even a desktop incubator nowadays because there were we, we would culture in desiccators. So there was an art to that. Um, I, won't, I won't go into the detail, but a lot more complicated than taking a dish out of or, or a slide with embryos out of a, an embryoscope or taking it out of a, a, a large volume incubator or a desktop incubator where it's just a matter of Either you punch in the name and you get the, the dish out or the slide out, or you, you take the dish that's marked and has a label on it and you take it out from an incubator nowadays with a, with a desiccated, desiccator 
These were glass top desiccators. That was an art and you had to do that. And that's, I think, why in part this system was so elaborate with two people always doing the procedures. So we always had a witness. That's and amazing, I, really. I mean, it shouldn't be amazing, yeah. but it's, but yeah. you know, this is morphing into really, uh, you know, a discussion where we, where we have regularly about like the witness steps and about the importance of witness, yeah. which we now yeah. have electronic witness steps. But it's amazing to think that, you know, back in the day, um, yeah. you know, you had these like, almost like two teams, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I think I think it may have only been Bornholm. From from visiting other labs in those days, I never saw that anywhere else but Bornholm. It was a great luxury. It disappeared, I believe, for the reasons that Bourne Hall, at least that first phase, changed. And it was this was economically not feasible. As were inpatients, they were not that was not a feasible procedure. Um, so those aspects were all changed in order to make the fees more um, um, palatable for other groups of patients. In the beginning, that was unaffordable. Uh, that that whole thing was couldn't be sustained. And so I think that that's why it has disappeared, but I think at a great cost because we, we in those days, I don't think Bornholm ever was accused of having a mislabeling. I never heard of it. Every clinic since then where I either visited or worked, that was, I wouldn't say routine, it's still exceptional to have a, a, a mislabeling. It's very, very rare, but it, it occurs in almost every medium-sized to large clinic on some regular basis, not every day, no, not every month, but maybe once a year, once in two years, these things occur. Lots of the time, most of the time, they, they are just very temporarily and are immediately reversible. But sometimes they, are very, they have consequences. That never happened in Bornholm. And I think it happened. And I know the, the, the electronic witness systems will say, but no, even if you have that, you make mistakes. But that's because... The witness systems that are nowadays used by the IVF clinics that do not have an electronic system, those are not truly the witness systems that existed in Bornholm. In Bornholm, nothing would happen. You would not touch anything until you both had read out loud the name of that person written on the back of that dish. And, uh, you know, it was engraved with a diamond needle. It wasn't, was not written because you could lose the ink. Um, so, yeah, quite, quite amazing. Um, and so I, I, I would have to ask Simon if he, he recalls a situation, but I don't think there ever was a situation where we had a mix-up. Doing a lot of cases here. Um, yes, and this, like, second team, team if you like, who were, who were doing the witnessing, yeah. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have been doing anything else to be distracted and come yeah. over and see, yeah. would they? They'd be waiting yeah. for your, you know, for your word. Maybe it's not like another yeah. embryologist who's doing yeah. something, and then you yeah. have to take them away from that and come and see you. I suppose. Now, also in theatre, um, there may be sometimes in a surgery theatre. There may be in those days somebody who would make the notes. So Patrick Stepter would read out loud. Now he would maybe dictate it later when he walked out or make his own notes as well. But uh, that, that's similar to how it was done and I think set up by Jean Purdy based on her clinical experience. She, she, uh, she made sure that we would dictate to the witness technician assistant and they would make the notes. Those notes were archaic, minimalist, but nevertheless, crucial 
in order to see patients return and to understand what happened. So, so um, yeah, we made notes ourselves as well, but not as not as detailed or frequent as um, as the witness technician did. So yeah. you asked about teams. Yeah, there yeah. were two teams, and obviously they couldn't do without they couldn't do a procedure without each other. Yeah. And it's amazing that you know, as, as first time I thought about it, and I'm, I'm sure um, most people haven't realised that you know, like the analogy you said with the the embryologist being being a surgeon. Yeah. So he would wait there. You know, that's a great insight, I think. But if we can jump ahead a little bit, several years later, could you describe um, a little bit about your involvement with uh, RBMO and, and and perhaps because we're talking about Bob Edwards and again, I think the first maybe location, which was the farm, I think, was it Duck Farm? Yeah, but there's a, there's a big stretch of several decades there in between. And so Bob wanted to hire two embryologists extra besides Simon and I because he wanted to find time to set up what later was called Ashworth. He, he initiated Ashworth, and, and his co-conspirator was Jean Cohen, uh, the great clinician from Paris. And those two, uh, with, with Dr. Diedrich from Germany, as well as many others that are now all, all very well known, and a lot of them retired, um, they set up Ashworth, and it started in 1985 with the first meeting in Germany. Um, that was really Bob's initiative, and it took him several years of work to accomplish that. And that was one of the main reasons he felt this needed to be organized. You could just not do IVF in a few clinics. This needed to be organized. This was a major event in, in, in medicine, and, and he set up the European Society. Um, and as part of that, uh, although he did, he was the first president of Ashra, but uh, he, he, when he retired there, he, he said, well, I, I, I think I should run a journal for you. And so they did that in human reproduction. And then later he, uh, he was able to convince the society to add molecular human reproduction and human reproduction update to that as well. So he started those three journals and ran those till 1999. And in 1999, so that is 15 years, right? And uh, with great success. And that was really his full-time occupation. Um, uh, of course, reporting into ASHRA, reporting into the board of ASHRA, and also reporting in and working together with Oxford University Press, which was the, the publisher for the human reproduction journals. And um, uh, in 1999, uh, he felt that... Um, um, a lot was lost, and by that he meant a lot economically was lost because almost all the funds went to Oxford University Press and the three journals were very successful. And, and Ashra management or board, I should say, uh, did not necessarily agree, so there was some disagreement and he, he decided to leave and he resigned as editor. Um, he was in contact with a lot of people, including me, and I, he, I, I tried to stop him from doing this. Because I thought, well, what, what are you going to do next? And what he did next, he set up RBM Online and he approached uh, several uh, um, friends and colleagues uh, for financial help as well as assistance, setting up a journal, which was pretty daring for a small group. So we were, I think, nine or 10 at the time. I was one of them. Uh, Peter Nash was one of the others and still is one of the directors. And so is Kamala Uja. 
And so we set up the journal in 99. I think the first publication was early January 2000. I think that was the first one. So that, that's how that happened. It was really for unfortunate reasons. Uh, but I could see where he was coming from. And, you know, if you know Bob, if you remember Bob, he was, once he had set his mind to something, it was not going to change. And so I think I, kn I know for sure people at Ashford tried to talk him out of this. And so that others who were not involved with Ashford, like myself, really tried to convince him not to do this. But he did. And I think with, with, with considerable success. So four out of the, four out of the uh, at that time, five journals in the early 2000s, five journals involved, or six journals involved in, in uh, human IVF, four out of those six, the other two were fertility and sterility and journal of assisted reproduction and genetics. Uh, those four out of the six were set up and run by Bob Edwards. Um, so he was really a very successful editor. He made a career out of editing. I don't think we've ever had an editor before that like that in our field, nor do I think that we've, we will ever have one like him. Uh, because reproductive biomedicine initially was called reproductive biomedicine online. The whole online thing was considered unbelievable. And so he was way ahead of his time in there. He was really a pioneer. Uh, the whole aspect of open publication, um, setting up a system where you have quick, short editorials that are uh, produced ad hoc, the way new scientists had done it since the 1970s. That was later taken over by nature. It was taken over by science. Um, even Scientific American didn't do anything like new scientists. And he, he uh, confided in me that he thought the new scientists, although being a popular science journal, got that system right, that you could have longer articles, not longer than a few pages, but a lot of short ones that were put together by the editorial board, the editors or reviewers. And so that, and, and fast publishing. He knew that fast publishing was the secret to success. So he set up all these uh, systems that were very novel um, in, a, in a system of peer review that was kind of sleepy and not much had happened for 50 or years or 100 years. So he, he I mean, I don't know, he was the first to do IVF and a pioneer in many other aspects as well. You know, the first to do PMT genetic diagnosis in an animal system, right? With, with Richard Gardner, his first PhD student. I mean, there's so many... Um, um, things that were new that were done by Bob first, but he was the first editor with a, a real vision uh, and competitive, really competitive. Um, so yeah, he set that up in 99, 2000, it rolled off. It was his own, it was, it had his own printing. Uh, we didn't have a publisher until uh, almost 20 years later when we went to Elsevier when, when Bob left. Um, uh, unfortunately, he had to retire from RBM Online. Um, we, we approached Elsevier to do the publishing. And that that was really driven by Kamal and, and Peter and I to move to another stage for RBM Online. But that, um, you know, those those 25 years that he was an editor of major journals, that those were unique years. And he, all, all, the, all the associate editors and all the section editors, we call them later, all of those people together. And at some point in time, I was, I was the person to follow him up as, as chief editor at RBM. I always thought if even if you take all these people and add them all up together and all their activities together, they didn't, still didn't replace Bob Edwards, who would 24 hours a day, 365 days out of the year, he would think publishing original work, interaction, explaining to the audience, to the readers, 
what this was about, trying to find new ways of communication. He was very much an era, a, a man of, of the era of electronic and digital communication, very much so. He would have embraced and did to some extent embrace the early, when, when he retired, uh, there was only a few years after Twitter and Facebook, but he was already talking about it, that he wanted to sort of involve that as a system of communication. So he was very much a man of his era, you know, never shied away from, from a challenge. I think if you really truly want to think about clinical embryologists, the first clinical embryologist, that is Bob Edwards. He had the first pregnancy and Jean Purdy did not do those manipulations. She assisted him, no doubt about it, and had... And it was much more than assisting, as I just explained. Yeah, of course. There, yeah. Were, there were defined roles there. The first witnessing system. Yeah. They realized how important it was not to mix up anything. Wow, that was an eye-opener. And so they were the first to realize that the lab should be an extension of the clinic, of the surgery, the operating theater. She, she was central to those changes, but she did not go in a petri dish and started pipetting embryos. But she had done that a few times while at Oldham because, you know, Bob was a few hundred miles away in Cambridge. That's where his professorship, where he was a reader, that's where his PhD students were, his postdocs were, his students were there. And the Oldham thing was kind of an experimental sideshow. So he would go up, do a procedure, but sometimes she would have to do what we call a changeover in those days. Again, based on cell tissue culture. The changeover is when you had to feed the cells. And they had on a piece of paper, it said egg retrieval, colon. That's the first page of the, of the patient notes in the lab. Egg retrieval, colon, and the name, name and date above that. Name and date, egg retrieval, colon. And the second line was the next day. It was called, didn't say it next day. It said feeding, colon. And then the third line was embryo transfer colon. That was the form, Charles. Everything else was filled in by hand. Yeah. That was the form. Amazing. <laughs> nothing, Amazing. There was nothing there. When I came there, I was shocked because I was, just, okay, I came from an experimental background, but we were much more into making notes about everything we did. And that, that wasn't the case. So you had to sort of fill in those blank, blank areas of those pages. It then built up over the years and became more detailed. In 1982, that's what the form looked like. The form wasn't typed. It was Bob and Jeannie. They were into into nice writing. What's the name? Calligraphy, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Stylistically writing, gothic writing. Calligraphy. So gothic yeah. stylistic writing. It really looked very pretty, very old-fashioned look to it. His way of doing things is very much spread over the world of IVF. There's a lot of things we do that are based on how he did things. But, you know, he didn't, he wasn't working entirely in a vacuum. Yeah, he certainly was the first who got to, had to get an embryo through the cervical canal into a uterus. You know, it's the first who, who got slightly immature eggs out of the follicle rather than in the way you would do this in the mouse or the bovine, where you would flush completely mature eggs from the fallopian tube or the uterus in the case of embryo transfer. So their approach was to get them actually out of the ovary. That was not what we all thought that should be done. We were a little bit shocked when we started reading those papers in the 1970s. That that's, that's what they did. How would that work? Eggs weren't really mature yet. They were still in the ovary. They hadn't ovulated. We thought that you would get post-ovulatory eggs, which is what you did in the mouse. And the mouse model is the big model. It still is for vitro fertilization. That is the, the animal model to use. So, so he, he, he was the one who did all that. 
But anyhow, the, the way you operate is very much based on what Gene Purdy and Bob Atwood's developed in the laboratory. And a lot of that is based on their, their thinking. There's no doubt about it. Medium production, only when it was taken out of the hands of most embryologists and IVF clinics and brought back into a service provider, a factory, a, a clinical lab that was completely unassociated with any clinic so that you could buy commercial media. They have brought that early system that I described to you back in to that came from Bob and Gene making culture medium. That was a holy process. You know, it was the shrine of all the little IVF laboratories that existed in Bornholm. The shrine, the most important places where the culture medium was produced. Uh, so that I think the manufacturers of culture medium nowadays are using a similar. A similar approach, not necessarily knowingly that uh, Edwards and Purdy were doing in the 1970s and 80s. Because if you remember, you were spending like a, you know like a whole day making this media, you know, sloshing it around really large volumes, okay, which you weren't used to, and exactly. then and then like companies came along, and I, and I remember one which was called like Swimed, I think. Yes, Swimed. Yeah. yeah, you know, and they would say, "How do you want us to make your medium? You know, is it Earls? Is it this? Is it that?" And yeah. then they How would make do? it. Yeah. And yeah. yes, and as you said, it's like you know, people were very suspicious. And of course, now it's packaged and it's got the quality control and it's got a stamp of approval well, right there. But it, it, it was no comparison. There's no exactly. Comparison. Yeah, the media nowadays and have been for many many years already are just outstanding. They are they are really standardized products that are manufacturers with utmost care. Uh, very much different from how most clinics made media well into the 1990s, even the 2000s. So complete change. I think it has improved results worldwide. And of course, now we completely rely on them because that's what we have to do. Our regulatory agencies don't want to see it in any other way. You, you, you don't make your own pharmaceutical products when you're a clinician, right? You buy these from some other source, ready-made, all quality controlled and managed properly and with the appropriate assays and certifications. And that's how now culture medium is made. That's how pipettes are made. That's how most IVF dishes are now made like this. Every, everything that's disposable is now made by commercially in, in a centralized way that is properly supervised. And that has really much improved our field. It's very much underappreciated. And Charles, you know it is, of course, and so do others, but not everybody appreciates where we came from. So part of the reason the results were so low in the 1980s, 1990s, is that we were just messing around doing these things ourselves. And I think one of the exceptions were Edwards and Purdy. They were an exception to this. They, they, had to, they, they believed meticulousness and standardization. So it's amazing to hear about Jacques and his story and... Um the early days of IVF and how I met Bob. Um, I was very fortunate myself to meet Bob Edwards several years ago at a conference in Thessaloniki in Greece. He was amazingly approachable, not standoffish at all. You know, you could talk about anything. He was very down to earth. And I think that sort of sums up the IVF community even now. Although we, we have a global reach, we're still quite a small community really. And you can see this on our webinars, but also on you know, social media, who's ever social media, we still seem to be quite an approachable bunch, don't we? So we'll be sharing more profiles of the greats. So if there's someone that you'd like to hear, please tell us, please get in touch with us and email us at contact 
at ivfmeeting.com. We'd really love for you to leave a review. Do this, please, in your favorite podcast app. It really helps others know it's worth a listen. Be sure to visit ivfmeeting.com where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus, you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.